From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She's one of the highest-ranking Black people and women in the Denver Police Department. But at what price? A high one, she says, but adds it's worth it. I'm going to continue to fight for legitimacy and certainly for equity and transparency so that we can actually start the process to change the culture of policing. Sergeant Carla Havert reflects on her 25-plus years with DPD, including an active EEOC complaint she's filed claiming gender and racial discrimination. We're in such an environment where when people speak the raw truth, it seems confrontational because we're so used to talking around things. We're almost complicit in it. Then, Nuggets Mania. We share some cool trivia as the Nuggets make NBA history. An informed and engaged community and nation grows stronger with access to credible and accurate reporting. NPR and CPR News teams are tireless in their efforts to deliver a full picture of the facts. Two organizations working together for a more informed public, one better equipped to recognize false claims and disinformation. Philanthropic gifts help CPR News and NPR do this important work. Explore ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's probably a safe bet to say that Sergeant Carla Havert has seen a lot over the course of her career. A 25-year veteran of the Denver Police Department, she climbed the law enforcement career ladder one rung at a time. And arguably, her work paid off. She's among the highest-ranking women and Black people in that department. But at what price did that success come? If you ask her, a high one. It, it pains me to, to be at this place, certainly in my 24th year. That, of course, was a year ago. CPR broke the news last September that she's filed a lawsuit claiming the police department has a rampant culture of racism, sexism, and discrimination. And honestly, some of the claims shared by some women in the department are hard to stomach. Claims of fellow officers regularly using inappropriate and offensive words inappropriate and unwanted touching, regular comments about women's bodies, intimidation, and overt sexual harassment all on the job. Locking the entrance to the doorway, other things that made women uncomfortable. You have to remember policing is about power and privilege. That's what Sergeant Havert told CPR News last fall. Still, she insists she doesn't want the lawsuit to eclipse or define her life's work as a woman and a person of color working in law enforcement. She joins us now to share more about her professional journey. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invite again. I will ask you about the lawsuit shortly, but as I mentioned, you don't want that to overshadow a lot of what you have been able to accomplish from within the DPD and your career overall. Is that a fair assessment? It is. Certainly is an integral part, but I think the most important part is that I am a trusted member of this department for our communities, communities of color, for our women communities. They know that they can come to me as that legitimate conduit to this law enforcement uh, environment, and uh, I'm proud of that. So what is your current title and role in the Denver Police Department? What does that entail day to day? 
Well, I've just had a recent unexpected change to my role. Mm. So I'm a, a community liaison, and I can tell you honestly that that has not exactly been defined. Uh, this has just been a week. But I would imagine that in my own personal role, I'm going to continue to fight for legitimacy in the department and certainly for equity and transparency so that we can actually start the process to change the culture of policing. That's mm. what we're talking about, the system of policing, not a particular person. Culture of policing. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about that. But oftentimes, the best way to start a story is from the beginning. <laughs> Where did you grow up and how did you come to pursue a career in law enforcement? You know, I'm one of those Southern girls in the country. Ooh, um, my part of the country. Yeah. <laughs> um, my little town didn't even and does not still have a red light. Very small town, but it's rooted in... Where is it? In Mississippi. Mississippi. And it's rooted in activism for the black community. Actually, um, Megger Evers used to come by my house. Certainly, I did not know Slain this. Slain civil rights activist. Mamie Teal, the mother of Emmett Teal, sought refuge in my little town, which was all black and is still all black, as she was going through the trial of the murderers of her son. Mm -hmm. So I come from an environment that's rooted in, you know, encouraged to combat some of the true realities that are out there, and that's systemic racism and ingrained hatred and uh, biases and prejudice. So I, I think it's my responsibility to do for others and to help others who perhaps don't even know they need help. Well, it sounds like you're really rooted in activism and speaking up against what you perceive to be injustices. Yeah, I'm rooted in uh, what's right and what's righteous. I have to ask, I mean, it's a really hard job, and you have to deal with a lot of people, a lot of different things, and obviously you also have public scrutiny. Why be a cop? Because, as I've always said, it's two ways to change something. Certainly from the outside, protests, you know, um, highlighting issues, uh, litigation, but also on the inside. We have to be inside of these systems that perhaps we've been held back from. We have to be inside these systems in order to, A, affect change, and B, to hold them accountable for these pretty things that they're saying, which may not be legitimate. So you can take any major industry medical field, you know, where you only have 5% of black surgeons. You can take, you know, housing and real estate. We've been talking about long-term redlining and discrimination, even from the government and that system. You can talk about a, very, uh, a variety of things in which certain groups, minorities, black folks, have been discriminated against and say, I have to be a part of that system in order to change it from the inside out. And that's why I'm here. Was the beginning of your career rough or was it more of a feeling of excitement in a sense that there were endless possibilities? You know, it was a feeling of excitement. You know, every once in a while you get lucky enough to get directed to your purpose in life. You know, I have a fancy degree in drafting and design technology, but I'm a police officer and I love it. And I think that's the best way to live your life, being directed to your purpose so you can have a purposeful life and so you can have a life of service. And so it was with the sense of excitement, uh, certainly in the beginning and still now, and with a sense of connection and a sense of responsibility for reconciliation. 
you know, when I saw my people, I understood them. So I wasn't afraid of them. And maybe later on, we'll talk about the exaggerated Your people as in black people, black people. Yeah. Minority black people, you know, a little bit later on, we might talk about the exaggerated, you know, fear, you know, of, of black people. Our black skin is criminalized, you know, and certainly that's amplified by actions. And we see the result of that in the killing unnecessarily of unarmed, you know, black men uh, and women throughout the country by the hand of policing. Certainly others are affected as well, but our cases seem to be more so just completely unnecessary. Mm. I mean, just completely out of exaggerated hatred and exaggerated fear and unjustified fear. And that's what make our cases a little bit more, you know, all cases are tragic, but a little bit more devastating than others because we can't simply take off our skin and make you not think all those things that maybe you've been bred and raised to think. So it's a tough environment, but certainly with a a sense of excitement to be a conduit to uh, change in our community. What do you remember about your impressions about the department and law enforcement in general early on, and how has that changed over time? You know, I always tell my people, I said, someone has to be the hero, let that be you. And I was always trying to remind them that someone out there thinks that we're great. Someone out there thinks that we're honorable. And we better make sure that our actions are reflective of that. Someone right now, unfortunately, is in a tough situation, you know, where you have sexual assault occurring, according to some studies, every 19 seconds, to some degree, sexual Mm -hmm. harassment or whatever, uh, violence against women and children. Someone is out there saying, I wish the police would come and help me. Human trafficking, women getting kidnapped. I'm reminded of a story that a friend of mine told me when she got into law enforcement. She said, my parents weren't good parents. She said, I was raised by my grandparents. And a lot of us, we can, you know, certainly relate to that. And she said, even then, it was a tough situation because my granddad just liked to drink a lot. And when he drank a lot, he would, he would fight my grandmother. And she said, she said, the police always seemed to show up to save the day. Hmm. Come on now. We better act that way. Somebody thinks that we're honorable. So our actions, our tone, our language, and our actions, our behaviors, they better be reflective of what the community expects. Somebody think we're heroes. We better act apart. Now, obviously, this was an early impression that inspired you to go into law enforcement. Has it changed? Do you feel that that element still exists? And what also concerns you about law enforcement? You know, that element certainly still exists. That fire still burns inside of me. Has it become hard? Absolutely. I can tell you, I can remember a quote from Rosa Parks. She said, I didn't know I was making history. I was just tired of mm. giving up. So, so, yeah, sometimes that burden is heavy. But you know that the reward is worth it. Because I can tell you, there's some nastiness that occurs that's just incredible. And and in probably in any kind of environment. Well, you obviously chose to push through the obstacles you saw before you and keep moving forward within the police department. Why did you do that 
Did you think it would get better? Did you feel like you could make a difference? And have you made a difference? You know, a couple of things. Absolutely. This is like a relationship. You hope that it gets better because you love it. <laughs> We've all heard that story. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're hoping that person change and you hope, you hope they develop and all that. But you love them. But also there are some realities that maybe some abuse is going on, that maybe some hostility is going on. And sometimes you have to honestly, you know, weigh that and say, yes, I love you, but yes, we have to divorce. And yes, we have to separate. Or yes, we have to, you know, I have to finally call the police on you for those physical acts that you've been doing against me. So it's been a combination. Uh, Certainly, this is my purpose. And I know that others have benefited. Because as with most things, when you shine a light on it, what starts happening. You know, people start moving. They start shaking and moving. Hey, look at me over here and let's make sure this looks this way. Let's make sure we say these things. Let's make sure we have one of those over here. Mm -hmm. Someone benefits because of that because now we're being looked at. You know, so we can't throw this up under the rug and we have to acknowledge this and we have to address these things. If you look at the system of policing, we're talking about the system. We're not talking about one person. Mm -hmm. I tell you what, Sometimes people be so glad when we put a black man or a woman or somebody in charge of these systemic systems because then it encourages us not to fight so hard because they make it a personal issue. It's not a personal issue. I'm a fan of Chief Thomas. I think he's doing as much as he can to change the culture of policing. We're talking about 165 years in Denver. Mm. You know, you do as much as you can. You're talking about implicit biases. You're talking about power and privilege. Who wants to give that up? So we're talking about a system that needs to to be changed. And that that demands that there's a lot of moving parts that are operating on the same on the same level and in the same direction. And oftentimes, certainly in my opinion, that's the issue. You know, we need like minded people on every level of this system to change it. Not just one person and then maybe somebody circumventing them or maybe somebody doing some performative things on that side and maybe someone trying to sabotage from that end. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's always underneath this one person. I tell people all the time, I said we had, you know, a black president for a number of years. He didn't stop racism. So we can't look to this one point person seemingly to stop this culture, this system that's rooted in power and privilege. I know you are definitely pushing for more diversity, particularly in decision making roles. Do you think that lends to more accountability or people feeling more aware of situations of lack of diversity of lack or lack of representation? Absolutely. And it should, you know, that equity, diversity and inclusivity, you know, um, that thing that some people call, you know, some people love it and some people don't. And that's because at some point they probably had a bad experience with it or they've been in situations where the people involved, they weren't legitimate in their efforts, you know, so the words we need to use are authentic, you know, because I think people know when you're giving them the runaround. They know when you're talking in circles. We know when, you know, we have a, a, a slick talker. We know when we have a double-sided coin, someone who can make you feel good, and then the deliverables or the results are something different. So you want to get the right people in there with the right lens. Now, diversity means more than just skin color. It means in thought. We mm. all remember that off event that happened in Memphis, Tennessee, Tyree Nichols case involving five black, you know, police officers. So we're talking about a culture, a mentality that we need to ensure doesn't exist. And we can't do that without mentioning 
of course, you know, self-hate and anti-black hate and certainly anti-black woman hate that comes from us and other minority groups. So diversity is about having the right person, no matter what they look like, with the right lens for being inclusive, for being accommodating, for being tolerant, for being welcoming, and not just as a tagline or checkbox item or as an agenda, because I think we're tired of that because it's 2023 and if we take the 20 off we can put it 1963 and we're looking and almost fighting some of the same things except we have a few more rich minority folks you talked a lot about the culture of policing and there's been a lot of talk about police brutality particularly in black and brown communities but clearly the George Floyd case is one that stands out as very pivotal and some would say helping to address some of these concerns. What were your thoughts when you saw the George Floyd video? Well, my, my thoughts uh, mimic, uh, I would hope everyone else's who has a sense of humanity. I was able to see a human being who was dying. Now others, of course, they saw a criminal, they saw what have you, I saw a human being incredibly sad to see I was angry at law enforcement. This profession that I love, that I'm involved in, I was angry at the actions of those officers. I was angry that they minimize the value of that man's life. I was mad that they didn't acknowledge and weren't affected by the pleas of the citizens, the people who were supposed to serve and protect of their calls to help. Talk about power and privilege. You knew that you were insulated, or at least you thought, because you have been for so very long. Did that situation kind of raise these issues of, I guess, being torn between I'm a police officer, but I'm also a black person and a black woman in law enforcement? Does that kind of create a lot of conflict for you? Absolutely. I'm currently the president of Black Police Officers Organization. And, you know, we were having a lot of conversations with our membership during that time because they felt pressured to pick a side. Mm. What are you? Are you black or you're blue? Mm. I'm black. This, this is a blue uniform. This is blue polyester. This is a cloth. I can take that off. And everything that goes with that if I take off this blue police uniform, you wouldn't know that I'm police. I cannot remove my black skin. So I'm constantly attached to whatever that means from your lens, your stereotypes, your biases, your what have you. So I'm black all day. That's what I am. But I know that I fielded a lot of questions from officers who felt that they were pressured because of this culture and this environment that we were in. Whose side are you on? Because we make these invisible fights, you know, us against them. Whose side are you on? I'm on the side of humanity. That's whose side I'm on. And anyone who looked at that and saw that, that's the lens that they should have been looking through. Not one of whose side are you on, law enforcement or the side of this criminal, you know, and all these other words that we use to demean, which equals desensitizing the abuse or the actions that are happening toward that person. Of course, Mr. Floyd's case sparked demonstrations nationwide, many of which centered on the Black Lives Matter movement. What do you think about that movement and the defund the police movements? 
You know, I've had significant conversations with the many leaders of that movement, and it's never one leader of any movement because everyone has so many different perspectives. And as I've said before, you have to have those types of group to push for change. And the squeaky wheel gets the attention. And it also says, hey, that's squeaky. So it gets highlighted. A lot of folks have been able to put on rosy colored glasses and have the luxury of not seeing things they don't want to see. And then it's people like myself and other folks in these communities who are forced to look through, you know, clear lenses of what's going on in in our reality. So I can understand their perspective. And as far as the defund the police, I've talked to many activists on that side. The impression that I got is that they didn't like to police. There's always going to be some out there who don't. It's not that they don't like to police. They didn't like bad policing. They didn't like abuse of power policing. They didn't like over-policing certain communities. That's the policing they didn't like. And as far as defunding, those conversations that certainly I was a part of was about, let's see what monies that's allocated toward policing can go toward other systems. And we've done that in Denver with the START program and with our you know, other uh, support system services, the aid center and different things. What money can we have for public safety, for policing, that we can allocate toward mental health and all these other dynamics that are considered public safety as well? Public safety is just not policing, but that's where all the money was. Of course, there's always some that say we want to get rid of policing altogether. That's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Um, so it was different perspectives. So I think on whatever side of this, you know, seesaw you were on, you know, you put your hook in that and you yelled and screamed over there and you yelled and screamed over here. Well, it's funny that you mentioned with the defund the police movement, because I know when I first heard it, I was like, what? Not have police? Like, I was very confused by the, the term. And then I actually put a call out for clarity, thank goodness, because I was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to give them money and then what do, you, what do you have to, like, defend yourself in all these cases? But several people said it probably should be called reimagining police or right. reallocating of public safety or something, you know, that kind of, like, maybe the title is, 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 it really makes you think that, you know, something right. different from what... I was told that it was about. So I was relieved that no one was pushing for yeah, yeah. no police at yeah, all because exactly. we all need help at some point. Exactly. Um, and we have to look at inflammatory yeah. language and, and those words that we use to, you know, to inflame and to stir the pot and different things like that. But if we take a moment to sit down and, you know, have a open and reasonable conversation where we're committed to listening because policing, sometimes we're all about telling people what to do that you know, we're not good at listening. We're getting better at it. Um, you understand what they mean. I mean, public safety is a little bit more than just putting handcuffs on people. Mm-hmm. You know, city services, mental health challenges, homelessness, you know, all these other uh, needs that we can be a part of. You talked about race obviously being a concern, but you also have expressed concerns about how mental health calls are handled. Crimes against women, such as sexual assault, rape, and domestic violence are often handled by law enforcement. What do you want to say about that? I can tell you that Denver, we're getting better at that. Law enforcement in general certainly needs to make more strides in that across the country, but we've been very progressive in our policies and procedures in Denver the only issue that I think we have a problem with is practice. How so? Well, you have 1,500 officers. You know, the chief is going to say one thing, but what I'm concerned about is that young black kid that's stopped in the alley at 2 a.m. 
perhaps by that two-year rookie officer. I want to see what that contact looks like. I know what the chief is saying. I want to see what all this other stuff is saying because it should mimic what the chief is is saying. So that's why I say practice. And I think uh, that's a valid response given the fact of the videos that we've seen and certainly the litigation that we've lost. Speaking of litigation, as I mentioned, you have an active lawsuit against the Denver Police Department. Here's more of what you told CPR News in September. Martin Luther King once said that a riot is the voice of the unheard. I believe that a lawsuit is the voice of the hopeless. What can you tell us about the lawsuit in terms of the grounds of your complaint And why did you choose to take legal action? Well, first of all, it's not a lawsuit yet. We're hoping to... It's a complaint. Yes, we're hoping to mitigate that. Um, When you do all that you can, you know, and you hope for the best, you still have to ensure that things are going to work out right. And when I saw the system trying to silence me, and when I saw this system trying to defame my character in order to minimize what I'm saying, which is a common tactic. And when I saw all these people who I know knew that something was going on were complicit in their silence and their lack of action, I knew I had to do something. I am extremely proud of my legitimate connection to the communities here and my reputation. My interests, my support, my passion for equity just didn't start since 2020 with the introduction and the influx and the creation of all these DEI units. I've always valued the black community. I've always had concerns for women and women's rights. I've always had concerns for those marginalized communities those people who were overlooked, who were talked over, who weren't even acknowledged. So my concern just didn't start since 2020. I've always had it. Now, of course, since George Floyd, there's a focus on it. I've always had it, though. But when you come in and you try to defame my character and make me out to be the bad guy, when I'm simply saying, hey, this is happening, we need to fix it legitimately. And of course, as always, you know, You turn it around and, and, you know, attempt to make me the bad guy. Well, there was a gathering of women in the department in 2021, I I believe, where women shared their experiences. And that's what we referenced earlier in terms of the derogatory language, allegations of inappropriate touching and intimidation. But I had a quote from you that says, quote, I wanted to see justice for them And I wanted to demand justice for this open secret that we've known all along, that this institution is still a problem for females and for blacks. What do you want to say about that statement? I agree still, despite our efforts. You know, uh, making progress doesn't excuse you from criticism or further accountability and certainly not from litigation. You know, we're in such an environment where When people speak the raw truth, it seems confrontational because we're so used to softness. We're so used to talking around things. We're almost complicit in it. So when you come with the raw truth, oh, you're confrontational. We're looking toward the future. I am as well, legitimately toward the future. 
But it doesn't mean that harm wasn't created, and it doesn't mean that there's not, has to be some reconciliation or some accountability still done with it. If that's the case, everyone who committed a crime last year should be, you know, given a pass. So we can't use we're making progress as an excuse not to address harm, trauma, or discrimination or inequities that have occurred. And oftentimes, people just don't want to hear that. I have to ask, how has your life been in terms of your personal (laughs) life and career since you filed this complaint? I want to read a quote from your lawyer, Jennifer Jones Bonino. She said that you have been, quote, essentially characterized and cast as the stereotype of an angry black woman, violent in violation of departmental policy and mayoral orders. What is that statement referring to? And what are your thoughts on that assertion? Now I have to ask, are you an angry black woman? <laughs> I tell you what, we do and say things that work. That stereotype, that bias has long since worked in these workplaces in corporate America, in these systems where there's not a lot of us. You know, there's a need to put us in our place to make us be complicit. You know, oftentimes we have side conversation about code speak and assimilating and all these other things so we won't offend the fragility of people. But if you show up as your true self, which everyone says that they want, if you say certain things or if you don't coddle certain people or if you don't cater to certain folks, then they stereotype you as that. And there begins this, this journey or this plan to almost, you know, defame your character, to encourage other people to treat you the same way. And that's absolutely what I've been a victim of. It's been hard. I have people that I don't even know who don't even know me who hates my guts. We're talking about confirmational biases. We're talking about people who've heard something and said, you're right. She is angry. Let me look for something to to quantify that in myself, despite everything else saying the opposite. I get tons of attaboys from the community. I said, I wonder why just certain people in the department have issues. You know, we have to look at that. But that's part of the plan. We've long since done that in policing. I mean, high crime areas, gang activity. You know, you smear things. You, you put a stereotype on it. You insinuate and you inject fear because you want people to act and think a certain way. And the black woman has always been the target. Talk about some anti-black woman hate, even from our own. You know what did Malcolm X say? The black woman is the most unprotected, neglected, and disrespected person in the world. Everyone wants power. And the black woman is at the bottom. So everyone needs someone to put their thumb on their back. And so it's easy to say, oh, that person is hard to manage, those dog whistles, those microaggressions, those different things like that, because you play into what that person wants to hear and wants to think, regardless of your actions, because everyone wants to be in control of someone. This is about power and privilege. So those things of common tactics that's been used to minimize people, we've used it in the criminal justice realm with sex assault victims. Why, why they don't come forward? Because it's always someone's going to bring up their sexual history. They're going to bring up what they were wearing. They're going to try to shame them. They're going to bring up they were drinking. That's what you do to try to, you know, discredit what they're saying because you know what they're saying is the truth. So those are the kind of games that systems like this play, certainly when they're trying to refute these open issues that we have. It's just that people speak 
inside conversations, and that's what I plan on bringing to the front with my federal litigation, those side conversations. Where does your complaint stand now? Um, I don't know exactly where it is, but I can tell you that uh, we're moving forward with it. I can tell you that certainly uh, the Denver Police Department, like most systems of policing, and certainly the city, county of Denver, city attorney's office, they're like anyone else trying to evade accountability in different aspects. Uh, you know, we can see that really with the treatment of their own or the mistreatment of their own. So we're going to pull forward. We're going to move forward because we're on the right path. And I know that what I'm doing is making it legitimately safer. Legitimately. I'm not talking about what we're saying and it's truly not happening. Legitimately safer in the workplace. I can tell you, Sandra, I was so offended when I heard all those complaints from those women because most of them had women leaders or bosses. A lot of our big entities that are supposed to protect us were led by women. Our internal affairs, who's supposed to hold officers accountable for bad act, led by a woman. Our HR department, where this is your safe place to go through, this is your avenue to get, this is your bridge over troubled water. That was led by a woman. All of our EAP programs, our employee assistant program, these people you're supposed to go to and say, hey, this is happening. They were all led by women, and we still had those very significant complaints, and it was more so than that. Those women were just brave enough to put it on paper. So as I said, we're still moving forward because we know we're on the right path for true change in this culture. And right now my uh, complaint is still being investigated by the EEOC, and we look forward to continuing that process. Well, you've expressed that you are not surprised and you somewhat expected what you perceive to be retaliation for filing the complaint. What gave you inspiration, some might argue courage, to move forward? You know, it's certainly been tough. Any any journey like this is tough. I remember a quote from Martin Luther King that says, America has a history of killing those who fight for civil rights either physically or spiritually. Um, When I would go to the bathroom in headquarters, on several occasions, I had grown women sneak in the bathroom. It was almost like they were waiting to see if I was gonna go in there. And they said, we support you, keep going. And then they would hurry up and scurry away. Mm. These are grown women. When I would get messages from men saying, thank you. Yes, men support this, saying thank you. There are a lot of us suffering in silence. When myself and my attorney received letters from active and former law enforcement officers, and I think from Alaska, and I think the furthest one away was Norway, saying, you're right, yes. When I have conversations with black women in corporate America, in other industries that say, yeah, you're right, keep fighting, because yes, those things happen to us. That gives me courage. Now, is the, is the burden heavy? Absolutely. But that gives me courage. What do you hope is the outcome of the complaint? Certainly, I want the respect, as they say, put back on my name. I know that women are safer in this Denver Police Department because of me. I know that black officers are better because of me. They have begun conversation with officers that they had neglected for years. 
they are reactivating and reconnecting with people. Of course, not me now. And it's almost like you saying you're accusing someone of not having a black friend. They say, see, I like this one. They've been doing that all along, engaging folks. They've been looking at things saying, we better make sure we're legit here. We better make sure we're legit that. Unfortunately, that shouldn't have to occur after this litigation was initiated. That should be a common and almost required act that you value all your employees, that you incorporate all your employees. So I know that there's been some benefits out there, but someone has to pay the price for putting this light on us, and that's me. Obviously, a lot of your complaints deal with lack of diversity and lack of representation. How does the Denver the Police Department stand, in your view, in terms of women in leadership, women representation, and also racial representation? Certainly, we need to look at optics versus legitimacy. Let's look at women being enrolled, and are they truly empowered Or is that just an optic? Because we don't need a woman in a role when she has no true empowerment. And we certainly don't need a woman in a role when she has no empathy or no effort to understand from that perspective what other women are dealing with. I mean, we've had women officers who who said they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel like they were getting cover. You know, they didn't feel like, you know, they were getting treated right. They felt that their safety was at risk operating as a police officer. What do I do with something like that? I have to turn that into fuel so I can move forward because that's a legitimate thing. I don't care what kind of pictures we take. Somebody is afraid that they may not go home and it may be because this male-dominated field want me to go to this call by myself so I can see if I can handle this call. We've had tons of, of allegations of that. Why? Because we can drive the narrative. We better be careful on that narrative You better question us on that narrative. We're talking about legitimacy and authenticity, and I'm moving forward because that is my purpose. Is there anything else you want to say about this complaint that you have filed against the Denver Police Department? I think I've already expressed my extreme disappointment. I am so, and I think I told the chief that a couple years ago, I said I'm so incredibly saddened that it's come to this point. You know, it's, it's almost like a toxic relationship You love it, but it may not be good for you. Clearly, law enforcement as a career in many ways still has a piece of your heart. And in light of all that you've said and what you've discussed in terms of even the culture of policing, is this a viable career option for anyone, including people of color, women, and those from other unrepresented groups? You know, certainly we have some some efforts and some initiatives out there. And I agree with them. My only challenge, my only demand is to make sure that this environment is going to be safe and empowering for them. Don't just say we want you here. Say we want you and we're going to ensure that you're valued and that you're empowered and that you're safe. And a lot of times we get involved in tokenism because this is a culture that we have to change that's based on power and privilege. We need to start addressing that. And until then, there's always going to be some deficits. Because someone is going to have to have power and someone is going to not. So I think that since 2020, I think that a lot of people and certainly this this new generation Z or whatever that we have, they're looking for more purposeful living. You know, they're more purpose driven. And if they don't feel that they have a purpose, they're going to do something else. So we better make sure that this environment is still a purpose and can provide that that 
solitude, that ingrained, you know, almost commitment that you need, you know, because I love it. And I think it's my way. I think God put us on this earth to provide a life of service, and this is my way to reach as many people as I can. And I'm going to continue to do so. But we better make sure that we're not just doing this performative thing and say, hey, come on over here. And then we don't really truly value and, and, and support these groups that we're saying now, saying it's 2020, that we love you. Sergeant Havert, thank you. Thank you. That was Sergeant Carla Havert, a 25-year veteran of the Denver Police Department, sharing her career journey in law enforcement, including what led her to file an EEOC complaint against DPD, claiming gender and racial discrimination. We reached out to the Denver Police Department for comment. Spokesman Doug Shepman said they, quote, will respectfully decline commenting on Sergeant Havert's pending complaint, end quote. In his response, he did note several steps the department has taken to improve the department, including the creation of the DPD Diversity and Support Bureau, a racial and social justice academy, a women's collective, and a number of community academies that involve community members sharing their perspective and experiences with DPD. The department also instituted respectful workplace training for employees. I should note that I also had a second opportunity to interview Sergeant Havard in a room full of lawyers this past weekend during a fireside chat-themed session as part of the Colorado Women's Bar Association's annual convention at the Beaver Creek Resort. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty lively session. No surprise there. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The idea of a computer getting too smart and launching nuclear weapons has been the subject of movies and science fiction books for decades. Some members of Congress want to ensure that scenario remains in the realm of make-believe. CPR's Caitlin Kim explains. Republican Congressman Ken Buck was on the House floor when Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu approached him with an idea for a bill. You know, we've all seen the sci-fi movies where artificial intelligence takes over and uh, they're they're fighting the wars. Skynet has become self-aware. In one hour, it will initiate a massive nuclear attack on its enemy. What enemy? Us! Humans! They want to avoid that type of scenario? They're sponsors of the Autonomous Artificial Intelligence Act, along with Representative Don Beyer. It's a bill that would ensure a human being always remains in charge of nuclear targeting and any potential launch. The bill is important to make sure that there are no um, uh, accidents in the use of of nuclear weapons and and that there are humans that uh, are making uh, responsible decisions. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey has introduced the bill in the Senate, increasing chances of passage. He says currently only the thinnest protections are in place, and the bill is about making those protections more robust. A new set of standards which, which we establish um, 
new protocols in order to protect against, you know, the worst. AI is having a moment in Congress. A number of bills have been introduced to deal with this new technology. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett put forward one to set up a task force to look at the responsible use of AI by the federal government. The White House said the administration would issue policy guidance on the responsible use of the tech. But Buck says on this particular topic, what the country needs is a law. Some future administration could change a policy uh, they can't change a law without coming to Congress. And so I think that's why we really focused on making sure that this was a, a law. Buck is optimistic that this bill will pass the House with strong bipartisan support. After all, if there's one thing that both Democrats and Republicans could agree on, it's that AI and nuclear weapons shouldn't mix, at least if fiction is any indication. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. The Denver Nuggets are advancing to the NBA Finals by way of the biggest win in the franchise's 47-year history in the NBA. This team, all season long, has been the best team in the West, but it's official now as they win the Western Conference Finals for the first time in franchise history. Denver entered the NBA way back in 1976 with San Antonio, Indiana, and the Nets with the ABA merger, the other three all, all had reached the NBA Finals. The Nuggets had some great teams, some Hall of Fame players, but always came up short. Now again, in their 47th season, they are the kings of the West. Monday night's 113-111 to win was made even sweeter because of who it came against, the Los Angeles Lakers, a team that had always had Denver's number in the postseason, winning all seven of their previous playoff matchups. In the end, a final missed shot by LeBron James left the home crowd stunned and sent the Nuggets off into a raucous celebration. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the presentation of the 2023 Oscar Robertson NBA Western Conference Championship Trophy, please welcome ESPN's Lisa Salters. Joe, thank you very much. I'm here to accept the Oscar Robertson Western Conference Champions Trophy on behalf of the Denver Nuggets, head coach Michael Malone. Hell yeah, coach! Yeah, coach. Hell yeah, coach! The guys behind me, uh, they believe since training camp, they believe coming into tonight, we have a special group, and have you heard all series long, Lisa, we're not satisfied. We got four more to go, but love this group. Let's go Nugget Nation. Coach, you've also said all series long that you didn't look at making history for this team as a burden or a weight, but, a, but an opportunity. What's been the most satisfying part about this journey? I think for me, the most satisfying part about the journey is who I'm on the journey with. I have a tremendous coaching staff. I have a tremendous front office, great ownership, and the 17 players behind me who came to work every day, checked their egos at the door for something much bigger than themselves. We have great players, we have tremendous depth, and we have a lot of character on this team. And I love each and every one of our players. The realization that the Nuggets made the finals set off waves of celebration across Colorado from the 9,000 or so people who watched Game 4 on the jumbo screen inside Ball Arena in Denver to other sports teams like the Colorado Avalanche and Colorado Rockies to former players and coaches and, of course, politicians trying to make a little bit of hay with the fans. <laughs> 
It's been a long road to the NBA championships. Here's some fun trivia about the team's history. Do you know what the Denver Nuggets used to be called? Officially, the Denver Rockets. They were one of the founding teams that made up the American Basketball Association back in 1967. But for the real purists, they were actually the Denver Larks before that, but changed their name to the Rockets before the first season. Seven years later, in 1974, they became the Nuggets in anticipation of joining the NBA. The name refers to Colorado's historic gold rush and the Nuggets people would pan for. The NBA Finals will begin on Thursday, June 1st, with the Nuggets facing either the Miami Heat or the Boston Celtics. Those teams meet tonight in the Eastern Conference Finals where Miami holds a 3-0 lead. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.